Hello and welcome to the latest episode of City Centric from Centric Lab. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are. We hope you are well, happy and healthy. Um, in this episode, we discuss with Kushal Sood, a human rights solicitor working with marginalised groups, particularly those deprived of their liberty. We at Centric Lab recently supported a successful case of his in the rights to grant a dying man compassionate release from prison, which we'll cover in this show. But somehow in society, we've accepted the dehumanisation of ourselves, and this is seen evidently in the prison system where people's dignity is stripped away. Our conversation with Kushal centres on the abolition of the prison system in its current form with our focus on the inhumane health impacts it causes. We hope you enjoy the show, and as always, do give us a follow, do give us a rating and a review, and do spread the podcast, do spread the need for health justice everywhere. Thanks. All right, great. We've got uh, Kushal Su uh, here with us today. Um, Aricelli from the lab is going to lead most of this conversation, but before we get into the topic, Kushal, could you actually introduce yourself before uh, I give a very inferior introduction? It'd be better to hear it from yourself. Hello there, Josh and Aricelli. My name's Kushal Sood, and I am a solicitor based up in Nottingham, which um, is part of a the East Midlands in England, and uh, I specialise in representing prisoners, primarily in applications for judicial review, which I'm sure we'll talk about the, the details of. Okay, cool. And um, as we said offline, how are you framing, well, actually, first, do you think abolition is something that the UK and the UK uh, political system and even UK um, criminal justice system needs to be talking about because often it gets compared to the United States and there's, I think, perhaps a misjudgment, if that's the right word, of, well, at least we're not as bad as the US but research is indicating that as inequality is going up in the UK, so are incarceration rates of predominantly um, black people. So yeah, so do you want to talk us through your, the way you're framing abolition? Is there a need in the UK and what does it look like for the UK? Um, yeah, you know, I'm still very much a student of abolition. I should emphasize that. And I think my coming to abolition was very much by accident. I was probably in abolition before I knew the term existed and knew what it was. And, um, you know, it's come from a several years experience in the criminal justice system on the inside. And the comparisons you see between the US and the UK that you alluded to often seem to ignore, and I find it quite interesting how they ignore that the disparities in outcome or the disparities of uh, people being uh, funneled in to the criminal justice system in the UK, they're more disproportionate in their uh, targeting of people from racialized minorities than they are in the US. So the failure, well, perhaps it's uncharitable to call it a failure, but the relative uh, absence of the abolition movement in the UK or the failure for it to take purchase as well as it has done in the US might well be down to 
uh, simple fact that there's strength in numbers. So the in, one of the important things I try to fulfill, especially in my spare time, is a role of trying to bring people's attention to as much abolitionist material as there is out there, as much abolitionist writing uh, and movements in the US and also movements in the UK that people might not be uh, familiar with. And for me, the framing of abolition is very much around not some piecemeal attempt to slowly reform the criminal justice system and engage in a dialogue with um, parliamentarians of others that have been involved with um, attempts to reform the criminal justice system for decades, but rather to present ideas which have had many, many decades of being aired in other parts of the world like the US and try and bring those uh, to the UK and do so unapologetically. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And um, in terms of how you're starting to put it together, or maybe you already have a complete picture in your head, but it is, so maybe we should do just a tiny little intro to Centric. So we are a neuroscience lab. And when you sent me that, uh, that tweet, it was, I mean, I, I understood why you sent it, but at the same time, there was nowhere within our imagination that we thought were, we are one day going to be part of the prison reform system. Of course, we're aware that it needs to be reformed and that that is the most unhealthy ecosystem and environment that a person could ever find themselves in. But we just thought that's, I mean, a lawyer has so many pressing things to do, right? That there, there's not going to be real any time to then get someone like us involved. So how, through finding us, what was your curiosity and how does that curiosity feed your big picture of this is how we need to move things forward? Um, you know, it seems to me, and I don't know if I'm alone in this. I really, really hope I'm not alone in it, in thinking that, <laughs> It's a matter of huge common sense to incorporate the kinds of knowledge that you guys have um, into the legal system. The legal system is supposed to be a supple enough forum to incorporate expert evidence. There's entire frameworks for incorporating expert evidence into our uh, analysis. So foregoing bringing the expertise of a neuroscientist into a case that purports to understand the experience of a prisoner it just seems nonsensical and really contrary to the aims of trying to eradicate or trying to deal with uh, issues like racial injustice. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a no-brainer for me, you know. Um, I know I was introduced to you guys by um, <clears throat> Natalie, who is a mutual friend of ours, um, who I only know through Twitter, but she was singing your praises when we were talking about, I can't remember the specific subject, but um, just a 
you know, quick look onto your website, you weren't um, promoting any projects or I don't think even involved in any projects explicitly at the time that related to prisons. But I thought, well, this is such a pet, your work involves such a pared down, um, kind of almost Occam's razor type approach to how to improve people's health or what it is about the environments around us, specifically urban environments at the time, that, um, that present risks to health. And, you know, it's been demonstrable in the input that you've provided for the cases that I've been involved in so far, that you provide this, these reports that are fully referenced and the power of that can't be overstated um, because there have been attempts to bring expertise by the likes of social workers into um, the uh, legal system before. And if you'll indulge me for a second, there was a, there was a judgment um, that <clears throat> I remembered when I was preparing for this, and it was a judge who heard heard evidence from a social worker and their manager and i'll read you the very very brief extract just as to how careful just to illustrate how careful you have to be as to the kinds of expertise you uh, present to a court now this was in an um, adoption case and uh, the judge heard evidence from uh, a social worker and their manager, the social worker was called uh, Miss Wilkinson and the uh, manager was called Miss Allsop. And uh, the judge says, and I quote, the statement of Miss Allsop, in addition to containing evidence which could only be attested to by Miss Wilkinson, repeated outdated evidence and what can only be described as psychobabble about the effect on the father's parenting of his own childhood experiences. In short, it voiced opinions which neither Miss Wilkinson nor Miss Allsop are qualified to make. <clears throat> I give two examples only. Uh, at paragraph 4.6 uh, of the statement of Miss Allsop dated uh, 2nd of March, it reads, the father is unable to have a dialogue with the children about W as it is too painful for him. <clears throat> It is my opinion that due to the father's own experience, this has had an impact on his emotional intelligence and that is so poor that he may not be able to put himself in this children's position and think from their perspective. His own adverse childhood experiences may have led him to develop maladaptive strategies in order to protect himself from his own childhood experiences and therefore not able to acknowledge the difficult experiences of his children and the difficult uh, experiences they have uh, suffered. So just in that brief uh, quotation, we can see that courts don't take kindly to expert evidence that involves uh, speculation. And, you know, the expertise of social workers has to be treated very much like probation officers with very serious caution but the way that you have framed your expert input has been akin to the way that you might approach it for publication in a journal or in another forum where you really have to be careful about um, 
making assertions and make sure that making sure that they are referenced so you know whether it's neuroscientists or the centric lab or other related experts i think there's huge value to be provided in talking about the effects of the environment on someone's health where you can reference it particularly wow yeah so let's let's anchor or let's go um and use that evidence part to go on to the next bit because um in the case that we just helped you with um what struck us is that you had an oncologist already saying this person should go on compassionate leave mm. and yet they were looking or you still felt anyway that you needed to go even for more evidence and mm. so one of the things that we use to frame our argument is well they're not looking for evidence because they already have the evidence like we we're not oncologists obviously so we can't have more expertise than the oncologist. So we delved into that psychology of what is it that people are looking at? Because this is, this is something across the board in doing anti-racist work and in doing um, abolition work as, as a macro word, right? Getting everybody free. Um, so when we usually work with the built, the built environment, which actually present, of course, is, is very much part of that. Um, but I find myself arguing the same in that, in that same psychological box or in that same psychological framing. So for example, with our community in South Hall, they have the evidence. They have the, the fact that there are toxins in the air and then they have the evidence of hospitalization, yet they're still sitting in two disparate bins that the counselors and even organizations like Public Health England refuse to do this right? Refuse to unite them and make that link. And then this is where our work comes in again. So can you talk to that? Can you talk to, do you think it is a systemic problem? Do you think it's just a flat out racist problem yeah. and, and the lack of empathy of, well, these are criminals or these are poor people in the case of how we usually work. We don't have to take them into account. Um, as to why we constantly have to go beyond the evidence or that evidence is scapegoated as, well, when we know more. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Really interesting sort of series of questions. And I guess what we found, if we use Roy's case as a lens, this is um, Roy, my client, um, on whose case you provided an expert report, an independent expert report, um, you mentioned that the oncologist had uh, provided evidence as to uh, Roy's life expectancy, but whether it was the uh, oncologist, the urologist, or his GP, what was particularly interesting to me was that how afraid of their own expertise they were and how tentative about their own expertise they were, because what we were trying to determine was, is prison killing this guy? Mm. You know? To put it very bluntly, is prison killing this guy? And in the most recent um, letter that we had from the urologist, or most recent extract of sort of opinion that we had from the uh, urologists and the oncologist, I think it was the urologist that said, we think this guy's got um, nine to 18 months to live mm. but if we look at the chronology of that that was after a gp 
had said uh, prior to that that he had three to six months to live. So apparently the outbreak of coronavirus had improved Roy's life expectancy miraculously, you know. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely insane. And what the urologist uh, said as a caveat in the uh, foot of that letter was that this uh, estimate of life expectancy is extremely imprecise, to use the exact word, is extremely imprecise. And so, you know, I think I mentioned to you in the long search for expertise, because I had to leave no stone unturned, really, because courts, like I see, they're so um, fickle <laughs> when it comes to expertise, or so, so critical when it comes to the type of expertise you try and incorporate, that you have to make sure you get the right expertise in, uh, in my travels, uh, trying to um, speak to different experts. I spoke to a biostatistician and what that uh, biostatistician said was that he gets why the urologist was nervous about uh, putting a figure mm. on life expectancy. <clears throat> because it's notoriously difficult to determine in an individual. It's much easier, he said, to speak about life expectancy of population groups or subsets of a population. And so my guess is, I'm only a lawyer, I, I don't know um, determinatively, but um, my guess is that policymakers and those involved in policy change see the effects of um, environmental pollutants or the effects of imprisonment as being very abstracted from the realities of people's lives um, because it's so difficult to, to, to bring it down to the individual, if that makes sense. That 100% makes sense, yeah. Um, Sorry, we're like the phenomena of physics, right? So the the what the entire solar system does in comparative to what an atom does is so different, right? And, yeah. and that's where I want, if you can take us further into the journey, because I, that in exactly that gap that you just said of, yes, and an, an, an individual, it's very difficult. It's very nebulous because biology is not input output. And because you do have things like, is that person getting a lot of care? Are they not getting enough care? How is that nutrition? How are the general stress levels? Do they have support? Do they not have support? Do they have other comorbidities? All of that adds to the expectancy, right? Um, yeah. But the people, as in the system, so whether it's a judge or it's a head of a council, they use that to sit on their laurels and not do anything because yeah. no one can go to them and go, You've got to do it because these people are dying. And so yeah. there is a frustration, right, of you're, we're unfortunately using the fact that science isn't ever supposed to be about answers. That's what's also crazy, yeah. right? Science isn't about answers. It's about further question and, and, and maybe even more questions that were there to begin with. Um, and they use that as an opportunity to continue to enact injustice, and that's where I find it both frustrating, but maybe that is where maybe us working together, we can figure out how to move that. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I can bring it 
the examples you give and bring that directly to the prisons context because Cambridge University published uh, some research not long ago that was incorporated into a paper by the government, Her Majesty's Prison Information Service. Um, and that paper was entitled something like uh, Experiencing uh, Long-Term Imprisonment from Youth to Adulthood. And it looked at people that were serving uh, indeterminate sentences, so lifers. It looked at them and what their experiences were like across the course of their sentence. Uh, and it was a, a, a group of sociologists and criminologists that had done this research and they were very much looking uh, through interviewing uh, a number of prisoners, what their experiences were like. And one of the conclusions they drew, and this paper caught my eye before it was um, adopted by the government, um, one of the conclusions they drew was that people become over-adapted to the prison environment once they've been there for a long time. Now, in the passage of a piece of legislation that's been through Parliament recently, in which, in fact, it's a piece of secondary legislation, in which um, people serving... Um, long sentences or people serving what they call determinate sentences, so finite sentences, um, originally would be released at the halfway stage of their sentence, but this piece of legislation allowed for the prolongation of their detention. Um, in support of that prolongation, the minister for prisons at the time, called Sam Gimar, he relied on that Cambridge University research that I've just uh, mentioned, which said that people became over-adapted to the prison environment. He relied on that research to say, well, we can allow this legislation to be passed because this research has demonstrated that long-term imprisonment uh, is adapted to. And the chief author of that research got wind of the comment made by the prisons minister, which was within the uh, explanatory note, if I remember rightly, to the uh, statu statute. And this researcher said, hold on a minute, <coughs> um, that's not what our research says. Do not use our research and our findings on over-adaptation to imply uh, some sort of positive form of adaptation and I know that research has been uh, it's, the researcher was um, someone that um, you collaborated with on a report for one of my cases actually and um, I know that he's been in touch with the Prince Minister I don't know what the outcome of that contact has been but um, you can just see how policy makers use uh, research and evidence that something is seriously wrong to their own ends. So you're 100% right, and we can apply it to the, the prisons context very easily, sadly. So there's enough evidence <laughs> when they want it to be, but there's not enough evidence when they don't want it to be. Precisely. That's, that's, um, that's great. <laughs> um, but, but neuroscience, Aricelli, it, it, it presents a huge problem because, you know, 
it's almost you can almost quite easily see how, albeit very disingenuously, they would use a concept like overadaptation in the sociological sense or in the social sciences sense to their own ends. It's much, much more difficult for them to use empirical data, which by and large is what you cite in your reports, to their own ends. There's going to be yeah. a point at which they can't escape the fact that prisons kill and they no. can't escape the facts that the fact that environments um some environments can't be improved and when there's decades of research which is a specific um thing you mentioned in your most recent report you said there's decades of research showing that prison environments are toxic and supplementing that we had experts uh, we had the input from social scientists saying that since 1774 prisons have been injurious to health you know where where are these policy makers going to go with um expertise like that and we've got to be prepared for them um trying to obfuscate in every which way they can um you know but I, I don't think they can run indefinitely, is my hope. Yeah, well, you've just said a very good point in terms of what people can and cannot get away with the way we frame it. So we started looking at allostatic load and the HPA axis, which is what mediates stress, because our work, we've all been very aware that it had to be anti-racist, right? That you couldn't just take our work and use it however you wanted. We made a commitment of our work always going to be political. And so I'm always thinking, and the team is always thinking, which is also a team of scientists of, from marginalized communities. Um, and I think that also makes a massive difference because um, we don't let it go, right? And we don't just come in from the side of, well, it's just science. Um, we have to make sure that people can't wiggle out of it. And fortunately, going through that and finding that from, 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 the, from the stress response, because a sociology, they're right, we do adapt because we have to, that's survival. We have to adapt to our environment. However, the stress response will tell you otherwise. So, so for example, if you are on the tube, Eventually you adapt to the noise, you adapt to the crowding, and you might just go in like a zombie. You do see those like glazed eyes, right? But that doesn't mean that the HPA axis isn't being engaged. That doesn't mean that your stress response isn't working and that you're going to get allostatic load, even if psychologically you are not recognizing it, right? You're not aware of it. It's the same thing with air pollution. We don't all walk around going, oh my God, air pollution, I can, I can, I, I'm inhaling it and I'm processing the particles and I'm getting stressed. No. You probably, we do to a certain extent, physiologically adapt to it and we're not psychologically aware of it, but it's still doing the damage. And that's why we were so um, attracted to use neuroscience for this specific end. But that has been because we are aware that we use our work for anti-racism, anti-injustice, all of that. So you do have to go in with that mentality in, in, to begin with. So um, just to start rounding things up, um, what I wanted to, for you to then just be real, if you can, if, um, to be explicit, why abolition, why in the UK? Well, <clears throat> it seems to me as though, you know, prisons are 
a monument to racism. And we can try and distinguish between what's going on in the US and what's going on in the UK until we're blue in the face. But I've already alluded to the um, more pronounced disparities um, among people from racialized backgrounds uh, in this country. And can you be explicit with that definition? What do you mean by the disparities more pronounced? Well, more, you know, more black people are being sent to jail. More black people are being stopped and searched, um, being refused bail. The metrics are all there. And, you know, apologists for um, the, the um, disparities quite often through presentation of very complex data look to other factors which they think uh, tie the police's hands or tie the authorities' hands, such as um, the infrastructure and the you know um, prevalence of certain ethnic groups in certain areas. But where that form of analysis, which I think is crap anyway, <laughs> where that falls down in particular is on the prison estate, because there's an extent to which uh, prison becomes a level playing field uh, economically for people. Um, and so those forms of analysis don't get anywhere. But one of the, we can take it back to Roy's case, one of the key pieces of data or one of the key uh, reports that I've cited for over a year now um, is what we call the Bromley briefings. And those are a collection, that's a collection of data that the Prison Reform Trust put together, looking um, in part at how people from uh, racialized backgrounds are treated on the prison estate. And the Ministry of Justice's own figures show that people are, if they're from racialized backgrounds, they are disproportionately disciplined and mistreated by authorities on the prison estate. So I always look at abolition through um, a lens of racial justice. And for me, that's always been the driving force. You know, 15 years ago into prisons, I had a sort of horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach the first day I set foot into prisons. And no amount of kind of, you know, Buddha statues, water features, or, you know, Malcolm X murals has got rid of that feeling in the pit of my stomach. So I always see prisons as a monument to racism. And it's, it's that that keeps me uh, going in trying to um, not reform them. You can't reform them, but it, eradicate them. And I'm unapologetic for that I don't want a slower, more a softer approach that reformists promote. Um, I want to keep talking about abolition without feeling sheepish. Um, I don't understand why you would argue for, why, why would you want to hold people captive? It makes no sense to me. So that's why <laughs> abolition, you know. And it, it's interesting, um, among the World Health Organization, they've got a specific task force for looking at prison health, um, which is oxymoronic, really, prison health, given the data that we just talked about. And within that task force, they much prefer to call prisoners residents than they do to call them people held captive. And that is very telling in itself for me. Oh, Lord. Um, I'm sure they don't think they're residents. Um, okay, and then the final bits are, how do we support your work? 
Um, so tell us where we find you on Twitter and, and other ways that we can support the type of work that you're doing. And, um, and then any shout outs to organizations or platforms that people can go and Google so they know, um, you know, how they also start the work and start um, um, supporting abolition. Yeah. Um, so I'm on Twitter. I'm at KK Sued Law. And I do post quite a few rants on there so it can give people an insight into what my frustrations are in my professional life, I guess. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd obviously give a shout out to the Centric Lab. I think you guys are really pioneering work that is going to be invaluable to the struggle against injustice to the extent that um, it can be struggled against in courts. Um, I know that people from the um, from backgrounds uh, that I represent, they're becoming increasingly disillusioned with what's going on in courts, and to a large extent, they turn their backs on them. But it's very much if we have any value in the work we do as lawyers, it's our role to try and bring expertise in that's of value in the analysis of racial injustice and testing the court's limits as to what they think they can do because the domestic courts across this side of the pond they've not even scratched the surface uh, as yet so if you are doing a kind of um, transatlantic analysis a cross analysis you can look at courts in Canada for instance and at least they've started to look at the uh, racial injustice caused by algorithms, for instance. Whereas over here, we are very, very early days of even beginning uh, to do that. Um, and so, you know, how, how can we, um, or how can I um, encourage people to support our work and organizations to support our work? I think it can be quite difficult to get expert evidence like yours through the court door. Um, there are a series of formal applications you ordinarily have to make. Those have been loosened slightly in the context of this pandemic, but ordinarily you'd have to make an application to the court before you can admit ex expert evidence. So the more the experts, and especially well-heeled organisations, can do to explicitly state in their publicly available literature that prisons kill and that prisons... Uh, harbingers of institutional racism. I don't think those are two controversial assertions to make. The more that they can do that, the more that we can include um, documents from cre credible and in inverted commas organisations in our court bundles to explain to judges who are completely ignorant to the dynamics of institutional racism, we can, we can encourage them to confront why we need further expert evidence to comment on the specific facts of a case. So I guess, you know, if there's anyone from any um, big organisations watching, they can help uh, much more acutely focused organisations like yours in doing your work by having literature like that that we can, we can put in the public domain and we can present to course. Mm. Nice. Thank you, Kushal. And then one last ask is a shout out to Mr. Davis. Do you want, are you allowed to give an update to where, how he's doing and what was the outcome? course well you know what ended up happening was almost immediately after we filed our claim with the court and we filed your own 
expert report, we had a concession from the Secretary of State stating they were going to immediately uh, release him. So we weren't uh, for all intents and purposes. And there was some um, further bits of admin that you had to deal with with the courts with regards to costs and things like that that we're still engaged in. But as for Roy himself, um, he's still in hospital. Um, and I get to speak to him uh, maybe a couple of times a week. I'm trying to just let him enjoy uh, this precious time with his family at the moment. Uh, he does, by all accounts, have a very short amount of time to live now, sadly. Uh, and he's been through a hell of a lot. Um, but they were overwhelmed with the support that was represented by not only the independent and objective analysis that you guys provided, because we have to bear in mind he's been gaslit for years by the authorities. Um, having a report and uh, expertise that says, no, this is how prison affects you. And this is how a diagnosis of cancer affects you. And this is how uh, drug dependency can affect you. These are, these are things that he's never heard before. So, um, you know, he could be in a much, much worse position in terms of his personal set, his sense of peace and peace of mind than he could be. Okay, well, if you can tell him that we um, are thinking about his well-being and thinking oh, about him course I will. as well. Well, thank you so much, Kushal. Um, we will have it up. Uh, this is Josh's territory. <laughs> very soon, don't worry. Uh, very soon with a, with a lovely intro. And um, edit it down to two minutes of worthwhile input. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much, Kushal, for your work and for making us aware of, of what we need to do in the UK for abolition. So, thank you, guys. So thank you for your amazing work. All right. Have a good day, Kushal. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye.